0: All right. Um, well, hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, so, yeah, just sharing more about the Advent campaign. Uh, as you saw from the video, uh, I think one, one key thing is uh, what's, the, what's the value of, of one life, right? What is the value of one life? So, and Jesus answers, I'm the one who never leaves the one behind. I'll leave the 99 and go after the one that is lost, as it is written. Your Father in Heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Not even one. This is true for me. This is true for you. This is true for Alex, Melanie, Maria, and Pastor John. You saw here the story of John. What a great God is ours to do what he did with John's life. And many, many years later, the long journey that John has been through and keeps on going God took him back to make a huge impact on his own hometown, uh, Marromeo. And what a privilege for us to be able to help on that uh, with this Advent campaign. Uh, with donations, we have like some kids. So if you go to the next slide. So either helping with uh, food, we have these kids, or you can go to the next one, uh, helping with uniforms, uh, which are critical for the kids to be able to go to school there. Uh, or the school supplies. Uh, And also, here is a QR code that you can use uh, to help with the donation. We have outside a table with a computer that can go in and also help. Uh, So please, during this season, bless the community of Maromeo as God continues to prepare new Johns and new Marias uh, in Mozambique. God bless you.
1: Thank you, Andre, Uh, and thanks all of you on the global team for the good work you're doing with Advent Conspiracy and all the work you're doing in Mozambique, but thank you in particular for putting together this Advent uh, campaign for us, it's just wonderful. So, we thank you so much for that. Uh, Hey, so, uh, friends, this morning we're continuing in our series, which we're calling Not in the Nativity Scene, right? So, some images from Christmas that, uh, unlike the shepherds and the magi, maybe are not going to be displayed prominently on your mantelpiece. Uh, didn't make the cut, you could say. Uh, last week, we, uh, we did everyone's newest favorite Christmas character, the Christmas dragon. <laughs> <clears throat> this week, we're gonna talk about five women of questionable reputation. So not in your nativity scene, but they are a really important part of the story. So why is that? What does their presence mean? Uh, what does it tell us about what God is like? Why we should, uh, uh, should wonder about this at all? So uh, I would suggest that the women in the story, they tell us three important truths about the heart of God. And we're going to look at those together this morning. So let's pray and we'll look at the scriptures. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful as, uh, as we're in this Advent season. To have this, this extra focus on the incarnation, uh, on the birth of Jesus, on what you've done for us and coming for us. And we thank you, God. Uh, may you give us eyes to see that well, hearts to really grasp it, and a, a, deep, a deep compulsion to give it away to those around us, too. Uh, Lord, uh, Lord we, uh, we pray that you would continue your good work in us and draw us closer to yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pause. So, yes, Matthew opens with a genealogy. And uh, if, if you have read the Bible... You know that periodically you come across these passages, these genealogies. They're these long lists. Sometimes they go on for pages and pages and pages of so and so begat so and so begat so and so. Have have you ever read those? Right. No. I mean, have you not just seen them and then skipped past them? Have you ever read those? Right. Uh, right. So Matthew, interestingly, he begins the Christmas story with a genealogy, and. I know what you're thinking at this moment, thinking this morning is going to be awesome. <laughs>
0: right?
1: No, you're thinking, please don't read the whole thing, please don't read the whole thing. So uh, we're, we are going to look at this genealogy, but uh, let's talk for a minute about how genealogies work, because Matthew begins his Christmas story with this genealogy for a very specific reason, and it's very important for us in understanding why Jesus came and the significance of all this. So, uh, this is how genealogies worked in the ancient world. And then we'll talk about how Matthew's is a little bit different by design. So in the ancient Near East, if you were going to talk about somebody who is really important, you have to start with their lineage, right? You have to start with their ancestors. The idea here is that it's, it's not enough for a person to be a big deal. Like you have had to be a big deal for generations, right? And, and so you always start by talking about a person's genealogy. Now, for the Jews, uh, and especially if you're talking about their Messiah, two things that you have to establish in terms of credentials right off the bat is that uh, this Messiah is a direct descendant of King David, right, the prophets talked about that, and also that this person is Jewish. And here in verse one, we have that, right? Matthew checks that box. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, so boom. He is a descendant of the king, and he is... Jewish. Now, so no surprises so far, but surprises are coming as we get into the genealogy. Now, more generally, if you wanted to show that a person is a big deal, you give a, a picture of their lineage. And this is uh, this is a little weird for us as Westerners. We aren't so much focused on this. Typically, we want to know, if somebody is a big deal, we want to know what they have accomplished, right? In In the ancient Near East, what they want to know is Well, what have the generations before them accomplished? What was it like before they got here? You had to establish their credentials. So uh, here's kind of an example of that and how this works even still today. Uh, So there's a famous apologist named Ravi Zacharias. Uh, He is an Indian American. And I, I heard him talking about once when he is giving a lecture here in the United States or in Europe, when they give him an introduction, uh, they talk about his degrees, the books that he's written, the different honors that he's received, right? It's a list of his accomplishments and that's how he is introduced. But he says when he speaks in India or other places in Asia, typically the way that his introduction will look is for 95% of it, they will talk about his father. And then the last 5% is like, oh, and Ravi Zacharias did this this and this and the other thing, right? which to us, for most of us, if you and I were standing in the room, we would be like, huh, so is his his father here today? Is he gonna be speaking too? Like, it, it doesn't really compute. But for them, that's what's important. That's what's in the backdrop as Matthew gives this genealogy. For his hearers, what's really important is to know that this Messiah comes from this particular line of people, right? So you following so far? It's gonna come to your neighborhood, I promise, but okay. So if you are trying to wow your audience in the ancient Near East and talk about how great this person is that you are introducing them to, there are two rules that you cannot break. And Matthew breaks both of them. First rule is this. So you don't include in the genealogy ancestors that have questionable reputations right you just conveniently leave them out like that one uncle that everybody has that you don't really talk about you just leave them out of the genealogy and in fact you could leave out entire generations this is totally legal right you could just like omit 100 years and be like oh we don't really talk about what the family did during that time period right totally legal totally expected they don't make it into the christmas letter out second thing that you don't do is you don't include women in the genealogy. You only talk about the men in the family, not the women. Uh, There's a, a book that was written about 100 or so years before the Gospel of Matthew called The Wisdom of Sirach. And there's this famous line in there where it says, let us now praise famous men, and then talks about all the men. And that was kind of the mindset of the day. Very unusual to find women's names in genealogies. Women were considered second-class citizens. They didn't have property rights. Uh, They weren't allowed to testify in court because they were considered unstable and unreliable. So they didn't make it into this kind of list. But Matthew, in his gospel, in introducing the most important person who ever lived, deliberately breaks both of these rules. He includes in his genealogy five women, all of whom for different reasons would have been considered questionable at best in their reputations. Now listen for their names as we go through this list. Verse two. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. That's number three. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, that's interesting. He doesn't even mention her name. But he says she had been somebody else's wife. Hmm. Hold on to that one. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Still going. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltil. Sheltil the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Ahabub, Ahabub the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, shout out to Zadok in the back, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Nathan; Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was, that was, uh, that was a, a bracing reading of Matthew 1, was it not? Um, so Matthew... He includes not one, but five women in his genealogy. And and it's not even the matriarchs. It's not people like Sarah and Rebecca, who are these respected women. It's not Old Testament spiritual leaders like Deborah or Huldah. No, these are women whose credentials are a little bit suspect in one way or another. So Rahab, the first one that he mentioned. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth Ruth was, was actually a, a very upstanding woman, but she was, was very forward in securing a husband. And so that's kind of part of her story. So a little bit like, ooh, hey, daughters, don't do that. Uh, Tamar. Tamar's story, we're going to tell in a second. It's a juicy one. Bathsheba, who had an adulterous affair with King David. And David subsequently arranged to have her husband killed. And then Mary who by any measure is a titan of the faith. But as a young, unmarried, pregnant woman, uh, she was widely disbelieved in her claim that she was uh, was pregnant as a result of, of God's spirit and not as a result of being with her future husband. So we're doing that one next week when we talk about the shaming neighbors, also not in your nativity scene. So... Uh, a little more about these women's stories as we go. But this is the question that we want to be asking, friends. Why are they here? Why are they in this telling of the story? Why is Matthew deviating from the normal formula of how you do a genealogy and including this in the story of Jesus? And what I would suggest to you is that, that actually this is, this is super brilliant. So Matthew right here in the opening words of the gospel is previewing three themes that are going to continue throughout the gospel of Matthew. Three important messages that he'll be developing as the gospel goes. And he's framing the story of Jesus in such a way that we can't miss these. And, and here they are. Uh, he is pointing out that women matter to God, the people of every race matter to God, and that God loves you even in your messiness. So first, women matter to God. Now, we, uh, we see this in the stories of these different women. We're just going to look at one. We're going to look at the story of Tamar, because uh, it might be the story that you're least familiar with, and it illustrates this pretty darn well. So Genesis 38, go look it up this week. Uh, but here's Tamar. So Tamar, she was married to a man named Er. E-R, Er. Uh, he was the eldest son of Judah, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because Judah, also known as Israel, uh, he was the father of what became the 12 tribes of Israel. Right, So he's kind of a big deal in the story, Judah is. So Tamar is married to one of his sons, Ur. And Ur dies before they are able to have children. Now the way the law worked at that time is if you were a widow and you were childless and you are still young enough to have children, then the dead husband's brother at that point would then become your husband. The, the dead husband's brother would marry you and have children with you, and those children would count for your former husband who is dead and provide an inheritance kind of on his behalf, right? It's kind of gross. And all the women are thinking about their brother-in-laws right now, and they're like, <laughs> wow, really? Um, but... Uh, In in that time and that place, this was actually a pretty significant protection for women. Uh, At that time, women didn't inherit property, and property basically was capital, right? Property was going to be your means of also making a living. Uh, It would be how you would live when you got older. You didn't have a college degree to fall back on, so children were kind of like your social security plan in that time. And so for women who died without children, they were in a very precarious situation very common for a woman, woman, in that situation, to fall into pretty desperate places of poverty. Sometimes to have to turn to prostitution to survive. So uh, it's there's kind of a, a purpose in what's going on there. So uh, Tamar's husband dies, and Judah, her father-in-law, family patriarch, he has another son named Onan. So he gives Tamar to the second son, Onan. Onan happily takes Tamar into his bed. But he deliberately avoids getting her pregnant because he already had other children. And so if he had children with her, that would dilute the inheritance for his own children. Well, Onan then dies. In fact, the text says that he died because God was angry at him because he was treating Tamar in this way. Onan dies. And Judah has one more son, but he refuses to give that son to Tamar in marriage. So Tamar hatches a plan. She knows that Judah, her father-in-law, is going out of town on business, and he's going to be traveling down this certain road, and so Tamar dresses as a prostitute with a veil covering her face so her identity is disguised. She dresses as a prostitute and waits on that road. And sure enough... Judah comes along, sees her, propositions her, not realizing that this is his daughter-in-law. Propositions her, and she says to him, okay, well, what do you have to pay me with? And he says, I will pay you with a goat. And she says, okay, where's the goat? He says, well, I don't have it right now, but you can hold on to the staff, and under this, uh, it's like a seal they wore around their neck, like a signet ring, right? You can hold on to these as collateral until I send the goat. And she says, okay. The next day, Judah's back home. He sends his servants with a goat to go and find this woman and pay her for her services. And uh, the servants come back and say, we couldn't find her. He says, well, what do you mean? You're supposed to give this woman a goat. And they say, well, we didn't see her. And we asked the locals, where's the prostitute that that hangs out at this particular place uh, on the road. And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. There's no prostitute that hangs out here. So Judah's like, hmm, well, that's funny. I tried. Goes about his business. Three months later, word comes down that Tamar is pregnant. And Judah is furious. How could she do this? She's dishonoring our entire family. How did this happen? Da, da, da. He's so angry, he is going to arrange to have her killed. And she, uh, Tamar, she sends a message to Judah that says, uh, sir, please don't be overly angry with me. I'm pregnant uh, by the hand of the person who owns this staff and this signet ring. And Judah, Judah utters this line at the end of Genesis 38. He says, she is more righteous than I am since I would not give her my son. I know, super cringy. (laughs) I should take a picture so you can all see your faces right now. This This is a horrible, horrible story. And when you think about it, this is not one of the stories that you put in the family Christmas letter. Yet that is exactly what Matthew is doing here. Let me introduce you to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the most important person ever born. By the way, he's a direct descendant of Tamar. What is Matthew doing here? Now, the story of Judah and Tamar. So Judah is the one in the story who is exposed in his unrighteousness, the shameful way that he's treating his daughter-in-law, who is his responsibility to care for, and he is not. And Judah is one of many men in the Old Testament who are portrayed in this way, men who held power over women, and they misused it for their own ends, for their own good. And Matthew is picking up on this thread of Old Testament teachings, which reminds his people that women matter to God. And there are stories like this all along the way. There's the story of Hagar, right, a slave girl who is used by her master to give children to the master's wife. Uh, There's the story of uh, Zelophehad's daughters. Right, who petitioned Moses for the right to inherit property because they had no brothers, and the property was going to leave the family. And Moses takes the matter to God, and God says, give those women their inheritance rights. Right? There's the story of, uh, of the different laws that come about. There's, there's the divorce laws in the Old Testament, which when you understand those, those are written in such a way that they are to protect women from being abandoned from men with no scruples. Uh, you have laws on the books against rape, laws against seduction, anything that would mar the reputation of a woman and would would set her back in her standing in terms of, of how she's going to get through life. And then as you get to the New Testament and to Jesus, uh, this theme only intensifies. When you come to Jesus, not only did he speak to women, which in that time a righteous man would not typically do, speak to women that aren't his family members. Not only did Jesus speak with women, he took them on as his disciples. He affirmed in word and in practice that the women were as worthy of learning scripture and teaching scripture to others as the men were. This in a time where the rabbis explicitly taught that it was a desecration to teach the word of God to women. This culminates in the Great Commission where Jesus sends out both men and women as his disciples with instructions to make disciples of every nation. It's not limited to the men. It's the women too. It spills over into the book of Acts. And you have Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. You've got 120 believers. They're waiting for God's spirit to come upon them. Jesus has ascended into heaven. And when God's spirit comes on them, it says that these 120 spill into the streets And they are preaching Jesus. Men and women preaching Jesus. And the onlookers don't know what to make of it. And Peter, he responds with the words of Joel chapter 2. Hear this. He says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And describing the New Testament churches, Paul says this in Galatians 3. He says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Why are these women in the Christmas story? It's because Matthew wants us to remember that women matter to God. That this child will be the savior of the whole world. Not just of the powerful, not just of the privileged, not just of men. That he will be the savior of all people, women included. Women matter to God. And I ask this morning for the women who are here today. Are you able to see yourself this way? To see yourself the way that God sees you? As an image bearer. As one who matters to God every bit as much as your male counterparts do. Men, are you able to see your sisters in Christ in that way? Do you treat the women in your life as God does, not as second-class citizens, taking care that they are not demeaned or degraded in any way? Would your wife, would your daughters, would your mom, would your sisters be able to say that of you? That you treat them the way that God treats them. Matthew, as he tells the Christmas story, he will not let us forget that women matter to God. Second, this genealogy, it tells us that every race matters to God. People of every race matter to God. Uh, Another important factoid about the women in Matthew's list. They aren't all Jewish. Some of them are Gentiles. Rahab, Ruth, and Tamar. uh, They're Gentiles. Bathsheba, probably an Israelite, but she was married to a Gentile, so that's like half credit, right? Uh, And this is not a small thing. Rahab and Tamar, they were Canaanites. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite. The Jews hated the Moabites. They hated the Canaanites. It's kind of like, picture this as like, you know, you're in the Old South and you're saying that your grandmother was a black woman, right? This does not play well in all circles. And Matthew's putting it in the family Christmas letter. For the Jews, the significance of, of having a, a pure bloodline, as they would say, Jews only. This was super important to them. So why is Matthew poking the bear? Why is he just putting this out there in this genealogy? Well, he's going to continue to talk about it throughout uh, his telling of Jesus' life and ministry. It's because every race matters to God. Uh, we see this in, uh, in Matthew's gospel as he tells the story of Jesus. He mentions there that Jesus deliberately goes into Gentile regions and preaches there too. He sends his disciples to heal people in those places. He goes and he touches. You weren't supposed to touch people who are Gentiles. He touches when he heals people that are Gentiles. He cares for uh, the demonized daughter of a Canaanite woman. He heals the servant of a Roman commander. They hated the Romans. And all this, this theme in Matthew, this theme we see in the Gospels, it culminates also in the Great Commission where it says there that we are, as his disciples, that we are to make disciples of every nation. Uh, Literally there, the, the Greek word there is ta ethne. Literally it means of every ethnic group. When it says to every nation, don't think like modern nation states like we tend to think of today. He's talking about people groups. Make disciples of every ethnic group. Baptize them into my family. Teach them to follow my commands. And he promises, I will be with you every step of the way as you do this. Here's how Paul articulates this to one New Testament church. He says here, and here is in the church, he says here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in People then, like people today, were highly ethnocentric. But Paul is saying, in Christ's church, it doesn't work that way. In Christ, every race matters. In the church, there is no favored ethnic background, right? No Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised. There is no favored ethnic background. There is no elite or commoner, right? Scythians and barbarians, that was like the lowest of the low, the opposite of the elite, the educated, the good-looking, the have it all together. No, no, no. In the church, in the church, we're all one, elite or common. There's no class, slave or free. Uh, Whatever you are, you're a brother, you're a sister, right? In the church, it's different. Because every race matters to God. I want to show you a picture of a beautiful gospel moment that happened a couple of weeks ago. So uh, this is from our our local pastor fellowship two weeks ago. Uh, So uh, the brother with the white beard, he is a, a Jewish believer in Jesus, a Messianic Jew. He's part of an organization called Jewish Outreach International. Uh, the fellow that he's eating and laughing with, another friend of mine, dark beard, his name is Father John Matthews. He is pastor at St. Matthew's Antioch and Orthodox Church here in Torrance. And John and most of his congregation are Palestinian. Uh, they are both very passionate. And before... This most recent war there started either. They're both very passionate about Israel and Palestine and the situation there. Uh, Pastor Cyril, he is convinced, biblically and politically, that that land belongs to the Jewish people, that there should be a Jewish state uh, in that place. Um, John and those in his church, they refer to the land as Palestine. And their church is full of people who have direct relatives, aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, who were forced out of their homes and farms to make room for that Jewish state. In other words, their differences are real. <laughs> and there's, there's some passion there. There's been a couple times where I've had to say to them, knock it off, guys. You know, you've got you to chill a bit in the way that you're talking with each other in this. But, More than that, more than their passion around these things, they are both deeply convinced that God loves both Jewish and Palestinian children and that neither one is in any way favored in the eyes of God. They're both deeply convinced that God weeps at the suffering that both Jews and Palestinians are experiencing in that land right now. They are... Brothers in Christ, uh, they, uh, they are deeply convinced that their racial identity is secondary. That what matters more is the fact that Jesus died for each of them. That every race matters to God. That far bigger than any difference that they have, that they live in the beautiful reality that Jesus loves them. And he loves them the same. And so when we come together as pastors in our city, they're able to laugh together and pray together and we drink coffee together. And it's pretty beautiful. And it is a monthly reminder for me of the gospel. This may not be in your nativity scene, but it's there. It's there. It is in this telling of the Christmas story that every race matters to God. One more. That's this. It's that God loves you in your messiness. So all five of the women in this Christmas story, they are associated either rightly or wrongly with sexual impropriety. Uh, Rahab, this is the woman who helped the Jewish spies escape from Jericho. She was a prostitute. Uh, Ruth, as mentioned, she was an honorable woman, but you know, her... Her methods in securing a husband were not exactly, you know, they were a little frowned upon. Uh, Bathsheba is a controversial figure. She had an affair with King David, um, and scholars debate over this, you know, uh, did she even have an opportunity to say no? You know, if the king calls for you, then what are you going to do? Does she have a choice in the matter? Other scholars are like, hey, like Kenneth Bailey is one, Middle East specialist, says, says, so at most, the way the cities were built, at most, her rooftop where she was bathing naked would have been 20 feet at most from the king's palace. You can't not know that people are watching you at that point. And so, anyway, all this controversy, but you get the idea. It's, it's all a bit messy. And with Mary, uh, amazing by any measure, a titan of the faith. But we see these whispers in the Gospels as we read of how frequently she was disbelieved in her claims that she was pregnant by divine miracle. Uh, These are some some messy, messy stories. And remember, friends, by the norms of the day, you can leave these out. Like, that's totally permissible. It was like, in ancient genealogies, Instagram rules apply, right? (laughs) Right? You can put in that picture of you in the party dress that's kind of slimming and the lighting was just perfect. You don't have to put in the picture of when you got out of bed first thing in the morning and you hadn't brushed your teeth or brushed your hair, right? You can do this. And Matthew chooses not to. He leaves the messy stuff in. Uh, In fact, I mean, if if you were going to go through the, the lineage of Jesus you couldn't really come up with a messier bunch. You'd have to try really hard. And that's the point. That's the point. God loves messy people. God loves the screw-ups. He loves those who recognize that they actually need a Savior, that they don't have it all together, that they need someone to come for them and make them right with God. You know, sometimes folks will say to me things like, um, you know, I I wish the church today was the way it was in New Testament times. You know, and usually when they say that, they're thinking about like Acts chapter 2 and 3 and kind of this beautiful harmonious picture that you have there. And I say those chapters because by the time you get to chapter 4, the mess starts to show. Right? By chapter six, you're having conflicts between uh, the, uh, the Greek-born widows and the Jewish-born widows. When you look at Paul's letters to the New Testament churches, the problems he was addressing, they, I mean, they, were, they were issues, right? In Philippi, they had folks who just could not reconcile, couldn't get along together. Imagine that in the church. In Colossae, they're starting to worship angels, right? In Rome, they're having uh, ethnic pr- problems between the ethnic groups there as well. In Corinth, Corinth was, just, was a dumpster fire. I mean, it was, it was such a mess. Everybody's sleeping with everybody. There's these divisions in the church. They're boasting over who's got the best gifts. Rich Christians are mistreating poor Christians. I mean, it's a hot mess, and I, you know, I look at the church today and I go, man, we've got our issues, but I don't really want to go back. <laughs> Listen, the church always has been and always will be messy because it's full of people. And people are messy. And I, I hope you're okay with that because you are one of these people. <laughs> and this is Okay. As Matthew reminds us in his Christmas story, you don't have to have it all together to have God love you enough to send his son to die for you. You don't have to have cleaned it all up yet. You can still be in process. And God will not be shocked. And he's not going to withhold his love from you. No, on the contrary, he gave his son for you that you might have eternal life in him. Paul knew this. He talks about it. And he, says, he says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst. It's a great attitude for any of us to have. Right? Not to be seen how we measure up to the person next to us or not. Or are they a bigger mess than me? It doesn't matter. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Can you say that you are one of those? Can you enter into the forgiveness, the life that he brings? Can you, friend, can you allow yourself to be accepted by God, imperfect though you are? And maybe even go that extra step and let your neighbor be a little imperfect too. Uh, I say this not so we can get all comfy in our sin, but the opposite. So that we can own it, be honest about it, confess it, and seek the grace of God. And as we do so, to, to accept that God loves you now. He loves your messy self, not just your Instagram self. Not just your Christmas letter self. Right, why these women? Well, they remind us that the Savior of the world did not come just for the clean, for those who have it all together, but for those who know that they need a Savior. Let's pray.